If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rex was rather appalled that she had been invited, this 50-something Rex's daughter who was in mourning. He thought that it was a terrible idea, but it, it soon became clear that they were going to be very, very good friends. That was Anna Thomason talking about Edith Olivier and Rex Whistler. I think the most important thing to remember about universities in this period is that they're all part of a much wider network of learning. And that was Hannah Skoda, on location at Merton College, Oxford. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of April 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The intimate friendship between the artist Rex Whistler and the writer Edith Olivier that developed in the 1920s and 30s might at first glance appear to have been an unlikely one. Edith was in her 50s and grieving the death of her sister, while Rex was in his 20s and at the very start of his career. However, 
as Anna Thomason explores in her new book, A Curious Friendship. It was a relationship that was to grow and grow and attract a staggering number of famous faces to a social circle that included Siegfried Sassoon, Cecil Beaton and Stephen Tennant. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Anna to find out more and he began by asking her what inspired her to write the book. I, uh, some years ago, I went to uh, Plas Newith on um, the Isle of Anglesey, North Wales, and I came across uh, Rex Whistler. His his extraordinary mural is in the dining room there, and there's a small museum dedicated to his work. He um, was in a, in a relationship with the daughter of the Marquis of Anglesey, whose house it was for some time, and uh, it was it was one of his favourite places. Anyway, so I came across him and uh, thought what an extraordinary character he was. He um, was so unlike my idea of a 1920s, 1930s artist. Um, he was so romantic, uh, inspired clearly inspired by the 18th century, and I was really intrigued. He he just seemed so so unusual. Um, and a terribly romantic figure. Of course, his life was overshadowed by his death during the war as well. So, so I, uh, so I was, I was fascinated. Then later on, when I started, um, I, I began the idea of of writing a book. I, uh, I recalled Rex, and um, thought what an extraordinary life he would be. He would, he would have, he would be to write about. Um, and so that's really where it began. But you've chosen to write a specific part of his life, haven't you? Well, yeah, as the as the research progressed, I realised that it, it wasn't just Rex's life. Which, and he actually remained quite elusive. I found it quite difficult to to find more than there already was. So there was a, a, a biography written by his brother, which is a really wonderful biography. But it seemed that there was nothing, there was nothing more. He didn't write diaries. Uh, he wrote letters but he he was he remained yeah he was quite evasive in his in his letters um and i found it really difficult to find him but um it, suddenly i discovered edith olivia and this friendship that they'd had and it was it was that that really opened up a story to me it became clear very quickly that this extraordinary woman who was kind of loitering on the the edges of his life well not the edge of his life the center of his life but in the official um version of his life. He was there at the edge and the kind of footnotes of other people's biographies. Here was this woman who was really very fascinating. Um, and um, so this this world opened up to me and she she really moved to the centre of the story for me. Um, and and I, I was fascinated by the idea of this friendship between people who were so different um, superficially and, um, you know, their age, their age difference was so profound as well. Um, but that became that became the story really for me. For people who might not know, who was um, Edith Olivia? Edith Olivia was, she was born in 1872 in uh, Wilton in Wiltshire. Her father was a rector of Wilton and chaplain to the Earl of Pembroke. Um, and they lived in the rectory at the edge of the Wilton estate. She was uh, one of 10 children. Um, and she she very much grew up within the environs of the Wilton estate in the drawing rooms of Wilton House. Uh, when she came into contact uh, with with all sorts of extraordinary people, politicians, artists, aristocrats, um, and uh, they really gave her strong opinions and ideas about things and a very strong uh, confidence and belief in her own ideas. Um, so she was she's a very bright and imaginative child. 
and uh, she devoured the books in her father's library. As she grew up, uh, she 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 longed to be an actress and to to escape the home. Her father was a very autocratic, domineering man. Uh, she adored him, but but he entirely controlled her life. Really, um, she escaped for several terms to Oxford, where she read history and became great friends with Lewis Carroll, um, author of Alice in Wonderland. Um, but she had asthma and couldn't stay in Oxford, had to return home. And there she remained. She um, had had one fleeting romance with the dawn at Oxford, but her father had said that he wasn't good enough. Um, and that was really it for her romantic life, as far as I could discover. But anyway, so she returned back to, she returned to, to Wilton and, uh, with along with her sister, who she, with whom she's very close, Mildred, they um, decided that they would just stay at home, looking after her father and mother. When her mother died, they they continued to look after their father. Um, during the the First World War, she 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 was on um, uh, many committees and societies, um, very busy, very active within the Wiltshire community. But when she when her um, when the First World War came. She um, essentially established the Women's Land Army. She realized there was a deficit in farm workers as all the men were away fighting. And she um, persuaded the local farmers who were very skeptical to to allow the women to work on the farms. And as it became clear that they were doing a very good job, it um, it really developed into something more official, became the Women's Land Army. After the war, she was given an MBE for her for her work. She was a very uh, practical and eccentric woman, and rather terrifying to the to the provincial world around her. Um, but but she she yeah she was busy every, all the time and and everywhere and knew everyone. Really um, intriguing world. Uh, when her father died in 1919, she um, moved with her sister Mildred to a cottage the edge of the Wilton estate, the day house. And they, they were finally liberated by this. They, they thought that this was the beginning of their life together independently. Um, but Mildred died only a few years later in 1924 of breast cancer. So it, it seemed that Edith's life had really come to an end at that stage. But for me, it was just the beginning of the story. Yeah, which is really fascinating. Um, first of all, uh, before we talk about how she met Rex, you mentioned that she had strong ideas and opinions about things. What sort of sense do we get of that side of her character? She she uh, read at least three books a week. She so she was and she was always reading contemporary um, writing as well. So she was she was very attuned to contemporary thought and ideas. Uh, some of which she liked more than others. She Freud was ridiculous and terrifying and rejected him entirely. Um, but uh, she she was brought up amongst philosophers and and writers. And so she really absorbed their ideas. Um, and she was obsessed with history and the spirit of place. Um, and she had um, profound Christian faith and also great sensitivity to the Wiltshire landscape. She had visions. She had uh, visions of a historical vision she thought she'd seen Leoness off the coast of Cornwall and she had a vision of the stone arcade at at Avebury so she her imagination was this extraordinary mix of 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 romance and practicality and and kind of contemporary thought so it was this kind of um soup um of 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 
within her that um, really made her the person she was, I think. Mm. And you mentioned there this idea of romance. Do we get a sense of at this point in her life before she meets Rex, whether she was resigned to the fact that that part of her life was over? Yes, I think so. I think, um, and I think she would have um, shied away from the term in terms of her relationship with Rex as well. I don't think she would have thought of it as a romance. Um, but she, yes, she, I think she, later she equated herself with Elizabeth the first. She um, identified quite strongly with Elizabeth the first. Just kind of, um, she, she said in her memoirs later on that she, she was um, almost married to Wiltshire, that she, that she had shunned a, the conventional life of a mother or a wife and that she had, had, um, she had dedicated her life to the Wiltshire and, and she did, she, she became later became very involved in lo- local politics and became the first mayor of, of Wilton, lady mayor of Wilton in the 900 year history of the town. So, um, yes, it was, it was sacrificing one, one type of life for another. But then she meets Rex. How did that happen? Well, Rex, um, to talk a little bit about Rex, was uh, a middle-class boy from Eltham in Kent. He was born in 1905. He uh, had a very extraordinary talent for drawing and um, became clear that he should go to art school. So he went to the Slade when he was 16 and there became great friends with Stephen Tennant, who was um, a mercurial, mercurial young aristocrat uh, who was obsessed with his own beauty and the beauty of things around him. And he drew Rex into his world of luxury and beauty and um, exquisite country houses. And Rex was immediately beguiled by this world. Um, Stephen had tuberculosis and had been told by doctors that he needed to get away from from London and from Wiltshire where he lived and he travelled south first to Switzerland and then to Italy to San Remo on the Italian Riviera taking with him Rex his friend from the Slade and um, they set up camp at a villa in San Remo and Whilst they were there, his mother, Pamela Tennant, or Pamela Gray, as she was then, she was married to uh, Lord Gray, um, suggested that they might invite Edith Olivia, who was her great friend, and who was then in mourning for her sister, to join them. And um, and so this was done, and Edith accepted this. She had been at a, an Anglican convent in the winter of 1924 after her sister's death she thought that she might retreat from the world and stay there indefinitely but the mother superior told her that she was far too alive for a world of prayer and contemplation and that she she should get back out into the world and so she did she felt rejected but she soon received this um this invitation to San Remo so that became the alternative she she uh sailed for France, starting a new volume of her diary. And it was very much the start of a new life for her. So she arrived in, in San Remo and, um, and then they met. And Rex was rather appalled that she had been invited, this 50-something rector's daughter who was in mourning. And he thought that it was a terrible idea, but it, it soon became clear that they were going to be very, very good friends. They immediately understood each other. That's what happened. I mean, how soon through meeting each other did they strike up this friendship? Well, immediately, I think. I think they, there was um, 
an, an, a, a sense of affinity from the very first day. I um, the story that I've 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 written is very much drawn from Edith's diary, and in the, her diary that night she she commented on Rex Whistler, a young boy who loves talking, and Edith adored talking. She'd been starved of it. Um, since her sister's death, so she she immediately got got on with him. She Stephen was was a very good talker. He was sparkling and charming, and um, always the centre of the room. Rex was a little quieter and uh, less confident than Stephen, but he he really did like talking. He um, I think I, I describe it as the, the duet of a conversation rather than a performance. Um, but he, they, they, they were discussing power that day in San Remo, the, the, the value of power, and um, yes, they, they immediately became clear that they, they shared each other's opinions and liked to talk with each other. Um, and in the days that followed, they, uh, they developed their conversation. Edith sat watching Rex drawing. He would sit drawing spontaneously, beautiful sketches of things, or just. Uh, she she brought a, a suitcase full of books to read to the boys, um, to discuss with the boys, and he would draw sketches from whatever was being read to them. So uh, th- that's how it developed. Mm. And how long did this go on for? In San Remo. Yeah, yeah. They were there for. I think Edith was there for a couple of weeks. She um, she it was quite intriguing what happened. They they decided that she should be modernised. She um, had long hair which she tied in a bun and tended to wear a velvet ribbon and Edwardian style around her head and um, there's a photograph of her with her sister from about 1920 I think and they look like uh, Edwardian misses with long hobble skirts and um, blouses and belts and um, the boys obviously thought that this wouldn't do for somebody who was so bright and um, youthful in spirit and so she was persuaded to have her hair cut into a bingle which was a very fashionable variation on the shingle very cropped cropped haircut with um, with a waved hair at the side and she she wrote in her diary that she'd been persuaded to do it and she she's absurdly old to have it done but uh, that she'd done it and she was thrilled by how she looked and they took her off to, to Nice and Monaco to uh, to buy lipstick and shorter skirts so there was an immediate transformation and uh, and she she it, it it brought her alive and transformed her so what happened next uh well they she returned she returned to England and um but ha- having invited Rex to come and stay with her at her house in Wiltshire. And um, they met first, actually, in London. They went for, a, for a, a tour of the East End in an open-top bus, and Rex had warned Edith in a letter. He wrote very amusing, entertaining letters um, to look very shabby in the East End. So they had, they had met for tea at the Slade and then set off on a bus tour of the East End. And it was the first time that they'd spent any time alone together. Um, so that was the beginning of this kind of intimate, romantic friendship of, of a shared imagination. And it became became a feature of their friendship to um, very, very much the heart of their friendship to go exploring, sightseeing, finding places together, being excited and inspired by the, the spirit of the places that they went to visit. But then Rex came to to 
visit Edith at the day house. And uh, that was really a very important um, shift in the relationship. The day house became the centre of Rex's life as it was for Edith. So so the, the, the day house was, was Edith's house within um, the estate, the Wilton estate. It was hidden behind a high stone wall and surrounded by trees, the woods that had inspired um, Sydney's Arcadia many centuries before. And it was a, a beautiful cottage uh, with rivers flowing past. It was really very Arcadian. Um, and it was... Um, Edith, Edith had created a, a, a retreat for her for herself, and uh, Rex arrived and was immediately inspired by this this house tucked away, um, and then went to visit Wilton House, which is just along the river, and it very much opened up a, a new world for him, a world of the 18th century of aristocratic grandeur. Uh, with its extraordinary collection of paintings and sculptures, um, and it, it was at a time he his imagination was full of fairy tales. At that time, he was thrilled by the fairy tale illustrators, and it marked a great shift in his imagination. And it really became the source of the rest of of his art, of his inspiration for the rest of his life. Um, but Edith's house, the heart of Edith's house, was really the long room, which was an old army hut. Um, which is attached to the side of the house, and that that was her drawing room, and very much the heart of her life. Um, and it was there that their friendship really developed. Edith lay on a chaise longue, and Rex would sit on a chair at her feet, and they would talk. She was surrounded by books and paintings, slowly collecting his paintings um, and books dedicated to to her by her. Uh, writers um, that she knew and um, as, as her friendship with Rex developed and she became friends with a whole circle of, of uh, other artistic people they, they were drawn to the long rooms later Cecil Beaton would lie on the floor looking at pictures to select for his first book um, William Walton came to stay with her, the composer William Walton, and uh, a, a piano was placed in the corner of the room. He stayed for months while he worked on his first symphony. So, yes, it became the heart of this the, this world, um, this circle that, that slowly developed around her. Mm. So she became the centre of this kind of social circle that had some amazing characters in. Are there any that you haven't touched upon that you think particularly stand out from all these figures? Well, I for, uh, for me, uh, it's really three three four Cecil Beaton um whom she met in, who she met in 1927 she uh became very close to Cecil Beaton he uh was immediately intrigued by this woman and um saw that she could actually offer him very practical help about his work he was uh, making a, a name for himself in the photography world he was a, a tastemaker and a trailblazer he was um very much at the heart of, of London society, artistic society. And he, um, he was, but he, he realized that Edith could offer him not only practical help, but help to introduce him to the aristocratic world that he longed to be a part of. And, um, and they too became great friends. He took photographs of everyone and everything. And so a great source of, um, of, 
a, a document documentary source for me where it was were Beaton's photographs. Uh, Edith was often at the centre of of the the group and entertaining or playing around with with the bright young things who were their friends. Um, so it was really intriguing to see those photographs. Uh, but Beaton actually adored her so much that he later moved to Wiltshire um, in part to be near her. She she discovered his his house Ashcombe, beloved house Ashcombe, um, and they they went to find it together. And um, so she was she was very very important in Beaton's life. St- uh, Stephen Tennant, who had known Edith all his life, um, and thought of her as as a a, a kind of mother. Um, later, he began a relationship with Siegfried Sassoon, the poet, and he he was drawn into Edith's circle. Edith respected Siegfried Sassoon immensely, and they became great friends. Um, and he certainly helped to encourage her career as a writer and in turn she she helped him organize his poems um, and certainly organize his love life with Stephen Tennant which became very tricky and very messy later on and she became a, a go-between for the two of them and also William Walton who um, was never as close as the others but um, s- certainly spent time with Edith at the day house and um, just enjoyed the 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 fact that the the day house was a retreat was somewhere he could just stay and work without being interrupted um and and with edith very very wise and sympathetic and um encouraging in 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 the in the long room so that's they were the three key characters for me but there's a whole host of uh characters who who come and go in the story Ottoline Morrill uh the the Mitford sisters the Youngman sisters um yet lots Edith knew everyone and um she as as her friendships with these young men developed she in turn became friends with their friends and she was accepted as a as, as one of them, even though she was so much older than them. What can this personal and I suppose social story tell us about the wider history and society of the 1920s and 30s, do you think? Well, the the story really begins after the First World War and um, it's, it was a very extreme time financially, politically and socially. Um, Edith and Rex were relatively wealthy comfortable um so they were sh- they were shielded from the extreme poverty of the depression um neither of them suffered and rex during the general strike carried on working he was he was at work on his first commission at the tate um so he it, it passed him by um but certainly for example they always uh, needed money uh, rex rex was a polymath he could turn his hand to everything and it was really his downfall because he could um, always do an illustration or decorate a room or um, do do the sets for a play and this he was always called upon to do this but it really meant that he was he was always in work and um, never struggling for money um, Edith also um, once she'd begun writing she she realised that, that this was a way of making money she never made very much money she was always Although it's relative, she was always struggling for money. Um, so, so there was that. But um, 
beyond that socially, it was a time of great change, um, since particularly within their society that, um, that the, the, in the wake of the first world war brought, there was liberation, um, sexually, socially, um, in terms of, of gender difference. And, uh, they, they also have a feeling of, uh, carpe diem of, of really just getting on with things. Women became increasingly independent in society and certainly, um, Edith, who had lived all her life at home with her father, um, was was a product of that. Um, and it's also, I think, it was that that shift in society that allowed a friendship such as, as theirs to happen, really. Um, it was also a, a great increasing feeling of social mobility. Rex was very, very middle class, but he was one of, I think, an increasing group of middle class meritocrats, artists, writers, um, etc., who who were able to move in society despite despite coming from middle class backgrounds. Um, and otherwise, well, something that interested me greatly was the um, increasing lure and influence of America. Um, after the First World War, Edith was terrified of the influence of America, and she thought it was a very bad thing. But Rex and Stephen were were really drawn to it, and Rex later went and worked in New York for a while. Um, so, so that was something that 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 appeared over the years. Um, Edith was, uh, was also increasingly involved in politics. Um, she became a councillor, and then, as I said. Um, Mayor of Wilton, um, and I think there wasn't yet, yeah, you know, as as women were given the vote and more of a voice in in politics, um, just and also just in society in general, uh, there was there was more recognition for women. What really interested me was that um, the rise of, of of fascism seemed to play quite a small part in Edith's diary. I really took Edith's diary as my cue for the story. Um, and there are glimpses of it, little mentions of Hitler and of things happening. But it, it really comes, the, the war, when it, when it starts to become clear that something's going to happen, um, really comes upon me or comes upon the reader in the, of the diaries quite suddenly. Um, and so, yeah, I think she was, she was in quite a, 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 a bubble in Wiltshire, in her little world, um, shielded, shielded from what was happening abroad, um, and then obviously that bubble burst with with the outbreak of the Second World War, and then she, Edith was was then mayor. She suddenly set to work, and she was incredibly busy throughout the war. Um, she was in, in charge of committees and air raid shelters and and uh, St. John's Ambulance and dealing with refugees. So she was continually busy and her diary really kind of oscillates between all the, the, the world at war and her, her little world and, and um, how disrupted it was. Um, and Rex, who had spent most of the 30s working for um, aristocrats in country houses on um, commissions really saw the war as um, as, a, as a liberation. By then, he'd grown tired of that world, and his love life was a mess. And he saw the war as as a way to escape all that. And um, 
he became a, a very unlikely soldier. A lot of a lot of friends thought that his decision to, to sign up was a ridiculous one. He joined the Welsh Guards, but he actually became a very effective officer, and he was very loved by his men. Um, and he he began to paint from life. He'd struggled all his life to paint directly from what he's what what he had in front of him. Um, he always painted from his imagination or from a uh, a world inspired by the 18th century, and suddenly, suddenly he he started painting on plein air from life, um, and it was a really exciting shift for him, not only within himself but within his work. So, um, so that was that was what happened during the war. If you could somehow travel back in time uh, and ask someone involved in this whole story a question, what would that question be? Do you think? I would want to ask Rex what he planned to do after the war. Um, as I said, it was a, it, it was a, a watershed for him. Um, but I, obviously he, he died in 1944. So, um, what, what happened next would, um, never happened, but I would, I would be intrigued to know what he planned to do, who, what he, whether he planned to marry, um, whether he was going to go back to the artistic world that he, he, had belonged to before or whether he wanted to break out and do something different. So it's really a what if. I'm, I, I, I'd speculate about what he would have done next. I have a feeling that he would have gone into film as Cecil Beaton uh, did later on and I think he'd have been very successful. Um, but I, yeah, I'm intrigued about what, what might have been and what, what he wanted to do. Um, and finally, what new impression of these characters and the world that they inhabited would you like readers to leave the book with? Um, so uh, the subtitle that I chose for the book, um, A Blue Stocking and a Bright Young Thing, is reflects for me, I think, how they might initially be perceived and how I initially perceived Rex and Edith. Um, and if readers were to come away with anything, it would be... Um, how much more they both were, how much, how how unsatisfying both those titles are, um, and and how intriguing and unusual the two characters were, um, and and the great profundity of their friendship in spite of their age difference. I think it's really, uh, an, a, for me, an extraordinary friendship, and that, and that I found that at its heart um, the most interesting thing. That was Anna Thomason. A Curious Friendship, the story of a blue stocking and a bright young thing is out now, published by Macmillan in the UK and the US. And now it's time for a short advertisement break. Visit the British Library this year to discover the history and challenge the myth of one of the world's most famous documents. Five stars, rich and authoritative, says the Daily Telegraph. A mighty emotional punch, The Guardian. The largest exhibition ever staged about Magna Carta includes two of the four original 1215 Magna Carta documents, Jefferson's handwritten copy of the Declaration of Independence and one of the original copies of the US Bill of Rights, both on display in the UK for the first time. Together with stunning manuscripts, paintings, statues and royal relics, Explore centuries of dramatic history at Magna Carta, Law, Liberty, Legacy. A once-in-a-lifetime exhibition. At the British Library until the 1st of September. 
Book now at bl.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A green figure that bears an uncanny resemblance to Yoda from Star Wars has been uncovered in a medieval manuscript dating from the 14th century. British Library curator Julian Harrison spotted the likeness to the character in the medieval manuscript known as the Smithfield Decretals, the Telegraph reports. The French manuscripts, which depict the biblical story of Samson and Harrison, show a crouching green figure with large pointed ears and spiky hands, similar to the appearance of Yoda in George Lucas's films. The British Library curator says it is not clear who the green figure represents. In other news, it has been claimed that the tallest stone at Stonehenge points towards the sunrise on the midwinter solstice. Historians have long known the circle of stones is aligned with the midsummer, and it was previously thought the tallest stone had been put back at the wrong angle when it was re-erected in 1901. But according to a steward at the prehistoric site, the tallest stone is in fact lined up with the midwinter sun, BBC News reports. Tim Dorr said his newly discovered alignment was at 80 degrees to the line of the axis of the monument, which points to the midsummer solstice sunrise and midwinter sunset. He said, My research shows that not only was the standing stone out of symmetry with the centre solstice alignment originally, but that its now fallen partner had also been, and so were surrounding stones, including the altar stone. In other news, Every primary school in the UK is to be sent a copy of Magna Carta to help pupils understand its legacy. On the eve of the 800th anniversary of the sealing of the document by King John, schools will also be sent a guide 
explaining Magna Carta's significance to current political events. The initiative is led by the Magna Carta Trust and funded by charitable donations to the 800th Anniversary Committee. Magna Carta was sealed by King John on the 15th of June 1215, after his barons rebelled and forced him to agree to limitations on his power. This was because he had demanded heavy taxes to fund his unsuccessful wars in France. The 13th century document enshrined the rights, privileges and liberties of the clergy and the nobles, and placed limits on the power of the crown. Most of the 63 clauses deal with the administration of justice and the detail of feudal rights and customs. Thanks for that, Emma. Now today sees the publication of the latest issue of BBC History magazine. Inside our May edition, you'll find articles on the English Civil War, the sinking of the Lusitania, and the history of slave ownership. You can get hold of our May edition in all good news agents and digitally. And in each issue of the magazine, we have an article called History Explorer, where a journalist and a historian pay a visit to a historical location together. This month, we sent freelance writer Dan Cosins to visit Merton College in Oxford, in the company of Professor Hannah Skoda, to discuss the rise of medieval universities. And here's what happened when they got there. I'm here in the front quad at Merton College, Oxford, with Hannah Skoda, Research Fellow in Medieval History at the University of Oxford. We're here to talk about England's medieval universities, first established in the 12th and 13th centuries. So Hannah, can you describe the surroundings here and, and tell me a little bit about what makes Merton College such an appropriate place to talk about the medieval universities? So Merton is really the first college to be founded at Oxford, so it dates from 1264, and they've just celebrated their 750th anniversary. We're standing in the front quad, which is really the oldest part of the college and dates back to the 13th century. In front of us, we're looking at what was the old warden's lodgings, um, so that was one of the very first bits of the college to be built and again dates back to the 13th century. Um, to our left we can see the chapel um, which again dates to that early period. Behind us we've got the hall, um, also 13th century so sort of area of um, communal activity for the students. Um, we've also got bits of the 15th century college here as well so there you've got the gatehouse um, which followed on from a license to crenellate granted by the king um, in 1418 and was built in the later 15th century um, and then behind us over there we have the Fitzjames arch um, which was designed in 1497 um, with really kind of wonderful sculptures of the zodiac um, right above one's head. So I think what's really exciting here is the sense of sort of con continuity of purpose, that here we're in a space which has been used for essentially the same kinds of activities for over 750 years now, which is pretty exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a really beautiful setting with a lot of honey-coloured stone, if you like. Mm. Um, for those of us who haven't been in these places before, it's kind of astonishing how, how beautiful they are. It must be a great place to be educated. Mm. So... Um, in, in the early Middle Ages, before any universities had been established, either here or in Europe, I mean, where could people go to get what we now call higher education or any education? So essentially, education is um, run by the church in mm -hmm. the Middle Ages. And in fact, even universities are essentially a kind of ecclesiastical institution, at least in the early days. So people are 
essentially um, trained in monasteries and when we find people engaged in higher learning it's in within a monastic setting increasingly by the 13th century we're seeing cathedral schools even endowed grammar schools um, but it's very much um, something which happens um, under the aegis of the church really um, if one thinks about the sort of education which isn't necessarily um, theological but more sort of practical types of education one might want to think about apprenticeships which are quite important mm. in the middle ages as well or if one wants to think about um, sons of aristocrats who needed training in the arts of war the arts of government and so on um, they're certainly not involved in a, in a monastic setting at all. They're going to be trained largely within a sort of familial setting and trained on the, trained, trained on the job. So we have a variety of sort of educational um, spheres. Yeah, so it wasn't as if there was a vacuum of education and then the universities came no. along. It was just done in different ways. Yep. I see, okay. So um, when then did the first universities come about? When they, were they first established in England and, and Scotland? And, and who or what was the driving force behind their creation? Okay, so it's really difficult to pinpoint date for the establishment of the University of Oxford. Um, we know that there were scholars here, even from the late 11th century actually, but certainly over the course of the 12th century in increasing numbers. Um, and I suppose there's sort of a, a cumulative sense here that the more you have um, intellectuals and scholars studying in a particular place, the more other intellectuals sort of want to come here and it gains a reputation. So in a sense, it seems to have grown organically in, in that way. Um, in 1167, Henry II banned English scholars from travelling abroad to study. I'm not sure how effective the ban was, but that clearly gives a sort of particular impetus um, to the scholarly community at Oxford and ensures that people are staying here. Um, in 1209, there's a big conflict between town and gown in Oxford, and this leads to an exodus of some of the students from Oxford who go to Cambridge and found, essentially, another university in Cambridge. Um, the Scottish universities are rather later. Um, so St Andrews, 1412, Glasgow, 1451, Aberdeen, 1494. Um, and they are founded largely by um, bishops, really, and for slightly different reasons, which are looking a little bit more political by this stage. In the 12th century, what seems to be driving learning is the expansion of theological scholarship and the increasing sophistication of that kind of learning, an increasing interest in Arab scholarship as well, um, an increasing need for um, Roman and canon law, um, owing to sort of expanding administrative needs of, of church and what we might call state at this period um, and also a, a huge interest in Aristotelian logic as well so there are sort of intellectual impetuses mm -hmm. behind the, the foundation of these early institutions I see and what, what explains if anything the, the lag between Oxford and Cambridge being established and, and St Andrews being established I think essentially because Oxford and Cambridge initially are fulfilling um, the educational needs of society at, at that moment mm -hmm. and in a sense one needs to wait until the function of universities has changed slightly um, to need these extra institutions. I see, okay. So um, how were these first medieval universities, particularly Oxford and Cambridge, funded uh, and, and, and what exactly were they aiming to achieve? You know, what sort of, what sort of people were they trying to produce, if you like? So initially they're trying to produce learned theologians largely um, learning is something that one does in the service of God it's essentially a spiritual activity um, that doesn't apply to all branches of learning given that they're also interested in law so already from the from the early stages there's, there's sort of an administrative and more practical dimension to this but largely learning is something that as I say one does 
um, in the service of God. In terms of funding, this leads to a really interesting problem because, um, and a problem which is quite relevant to us now, given how concerned we are about student fees at the moment, um, but you can't charge for learning because learning is a gift from God. Right? It's not something that we have inherent within us. It's something that we should be thankful to God for giving us. So how can you charge a student to pass on that learning um, when essentially it's a gift from God? That's kind of cheeky. It's God who should be thanked for this. So they find ways of getting around this, whereby you can charge um, for the labour of teaching and your research, but not for the product which you're passing on to your students. Um, but it leads to some quite interesting um, thought in this period about what the nature of learning is and what its true purpose and true function is. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the Middle Ages, um, universities become increasingly tied to the administrative needs of state. And at that point, the question of um, fees and funding looks rather different because one's not just talking about things in a, in a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. um, there's also actually really interesting contrast with southern universities in this sense, in that southern universities in Italy particularly are focused on teaching law. Um, whereas the northern universities are more kind of arts, theology based. Um, and in the Italian universities, they don't really have a problem with fees, partly because it's about law. So there's not the same kind of spiritual dimension to it. And um, there's a very wonderful article by a guy called Alan Cobben <clears throat> comparing the effects of um, charging fees uh, in the south and not charging fees in the north and what he argues is that this led students to be far more politically engaged in the south because because they have to pay fees directly to their masters all the time if they're you know fed up or angry or want to make some kind of protest or some sort of political statement all they have to do is refuse to pay mm. and the university kind of grinds to a halt in the north students don't have this possibility they're in a much weaker position so we don't see students engaging politically um, in the same ways Interesting, interesting. So, forgive me, but we say that people weren't paying fees. So, so was the money coming from the church and the state or, or one or the other? Um, so, largely, these are endowed institutions. Merton's a great example. So, it's endowed by Walter de Merton, its founder in 1264. Um, and <clears throat> they're largely endowed with lands from which they can then draw an income. I see. Individual masters might hold benefices in the countryside, so where they will be priest of a particular parish, but not actually there to do the job. So they'll get someone else to do it in their place, but they get to draw the income of it, which enables them to carry out their duties. I see, I see. Um, so with all that in mind then, what, what was the status of, of universities in medieval society? Um, you know, how were they viewed and what influence did they have and how did that change over the centuries as, as they grew? Um, so universities are extremely high status, basically. They're, they're extremely prestigious institutions. Um, it's in the interests of the monarchy um, to, uh, you know, do everything they can to protect and preserve universities because in some way, you know, it kind of reflects the glory of mm -hmm. the, the wider um, political community. So there's a real sense that one wants to do everything one can as a medieval ruler um, to protect and nourish um, universities. The status shifts slightly, I think, over the course of the period in that by the 15th century, universities are more closely connected with training people in the needs of state, mm -hmm. which is partly just connected with the rise of political, the political classes and, and, and rise of administrative mechanisms generally so that you know, people need mm. more sophisticated training in order to, in order to serve state effectively. Mm. Um, 
And in that context, Oxford particularly comes out with all kinds of statements about just how important it is to the needs of states. So we've got a whole series of letters from the university to the king saying, um, you know, we really, really matter. We really matter to you and what you're trying to do. So you must give us lots of money, basically. Um, so there's one from 1430 to the Duke of Bedford, um, who at that point is uh, regent where the university writes, for military power unless channeled by wisdom and learning is easily misdirected. So there's a sense that, you know, you can't properly govern a kingdom unless you've got powerful universities there to sort of help and guide you. Um, The Foundation of All Souls, which is uh, 1438, founded by Archbishop Chichley, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, is founded explicitly in the statutes to provide, quote, unarmed soldiery. So these students and scholars at the university will be like a kind of military force for the kingdom, but using their minds <laughs> rather than their bodies as weapons. Interesting, interesting. But again, so, I mean, th- these places seem to have great big walls around them and, and gates to get in. So to what extent was there, there a sense that medieval, medieval universities and, and the colleges were, were closed communities, you know, set apart from wider society and given special status? Absolutely, and I think the architecture of the college makes precisely that point. The quads, um, which in many ways kind of embody the nature of the medieval university most famously, they're obviously looking inwards. So you're part of a community where you're all engaged in a common task and you're all sort of you know, physically looking towards the centre of the quad as well. Um, and this sense of being sort of set apart is really embedded in the statutes which found these colleges and the initial founding statutes of the universities as well. It's most practically embodied in the sense that students have exemption from um, secular jurisdiction, so they're not subject to the normal jurisdictional paths. So if a student misbehaves or is guilty of a crime, they go to a different court. So they can't get away with things with complete impunity, but they certainly look as if they're kind of set apart and and rather special. And they think about themselves in in, in sort of special ways as well. There's a a recent article by um, Ad Putter, who's um, a medievalist at the University of Bristol, um, about the origins of the universities of Oxford and Cambridge not in real terms, but in terms of what the scholars were saying about their origins in the 15th century. Um, And he unearths um, a text by Nicholas Cantaloupe, um, a scholar from Cambridge, who claimed that Cambridge had been founded by King Arthur and was therefore older than Oxford. Um, And Oxford responded um, by saying that, no, Oxford was older than King Arthur because they were founded by a group of Greek masters who were studying at Cricklade near Oxford and then gradually migrated towards Oxford. So their roots are actually Greek. Um, And then Cantaloupe responded by saying, well, Cambridge in Latin sounds a bit like Cantabria, meaning Spain. So... Cambridge was actually founded by a group of Spanish scholars who predated those guys from Cricklade. And, you know, clearly they're making it up. But at the same time, they're sort of playing with these ideas in quite fanciful ways. But to really make the point that, you know, they are really, really old and they're really prestigious and they're really different from everything else around them. So they're both sort of trying to peddle their own mythology, if you like, to to, to boost their own status. Yeah. Interesting. So what, what did the people of the towns then make of this? Presumably this got up people's noses a little bit, you know. Was, were, were there any sort of disputes between the wider town and, and, the, and the sort of, you know, this university that's, that's formed within the town? Uh, there certainly were. So um, there are huge town-gown disputes and conflicts over the course of the Middle Ages. And this issue of jurisdictional immunity, what's called privilegium fori for the students, seems to be the the main sort of bone of contention 
um, between the two. And this really sort of culminates in the St. Scholasticus Day Massacre of 1355. Um, so two students go to a tavern to have some um, wine and they accuse the tavern keeper of having watered down their wine. So they throw it in his face and then beat the tavern keeper up. And various other students then join in. And the townspeople complain to the university chancellor and say, you know, look, this has got to stop, it's not acceptable. And the university chancellor does absolutely nothing, basically, apart from really encourage the students to get on with this. So this looks like, you know, precisely what the townspeople have been complaining about in terms of jurisdictional immunity. Um, anyway, it goes on a little bit. The townspeople sort of rally together and form their own kind of quasi-army, really. And... Um, in many ways quite ritualistically enact their venge vengeance on the scholars and they mutilate and massacre huge numbers of students who do fight back but, but many of whom just have to kind of lock themselves in their halls. Um, and the whole episode is extremely bloody. Um, anyway, and the result for the town is the loss of any remaining privileges so that they find themselves completely um, sort of done down vis-a-vis -vis the university for the rest of the Middle Ages, effectively. But in some ways, a more positive outcome is that whereas, you know, in comparison with continental universities where that sort of town-gown conflict seems to continue, in Oxford it doesn't really. So that by the 15th century, we find quite a lot of examples of students and townspeople doing stuff together, sort of acting together in confraternities, even engaging in criminal activity together, which is not necessarily a good thing, but it's interesting that they're no longer sort of yeah. pitted against each other, really. Sure. Um, the other issue which drives that massacre is the issue of the assize of bread and ale, um, which is to do with the kind of quality control of um, bread and ale, over which the townspeople obviously want to retain control and the university wants to have control. So sort of constant wrangling about mm, this, mm. Um, really to do with the commercial dependence of the, the university on the town and the sense that this gives the town a kind of unfair advantage and again the tensions over this sort of ratchet up until it, it breaks out into this horrific violence in 1355. Right, right. But is, is there a sense that, you know, when it came to a head with that horrendous violence that, that put an end to it because people saw we don't want this carrying on? Um, it would be nice to think that it's because of that. I think it, it probably is to some extent but I think it's also simply that um, the town finds itself just completely legally undermined right, so um, the by the reprisals yeah. um, afterwards. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so um, if we could, you know, possibly get a little bit of European context here, mm -hmm. you know, how were the English and Scottish universities distinguished, if at all, from universities in Europe? I know you mentioned earlier that there was, there was some uh, sense that, you know, that they focused on different subjects or different areas, but was there anything else that, that really set the European universities apart from those, those in the British Isles? So I think that, on the whole, the European universities, particularly places like Paris, are rather more international and cosmopolitan than the English and Scottish universities. And one way we can illustrate this, actually, is that universities in this period tended to be administratively divided into what were called nations, um, which don't correspond in any way to what we think of as nations. So the University of Paris was divided into the Anglo-German, the French, the Picard and the Norman nation. Um, say doesn't correspond to political boundaries at all but does give you a sense of the kind of wide geographical provenance of their students whereas Oxford University was divided into northerners and southerners <laughs> so you know again that sort of gives you a sense that it is much more insular having said that I think the most important thing to remember about universities in this period is that they're all part of a 
much wider network of learning. Um, and Oxford and Cambridge are equally as part of that network as, as are European universities. It's a kind of international culture of, of research and learning which um, plays out in very practical ways and must have been very exciting. So, you know, one finds kind of intellectual tourists, in a sense, scholars who went from university to university mm-hmm. to study a little bit in each. Um, and one also finds ideas moving between universities very, very rapidly. So the example to draw on here, since we're in Merton, would be John Wycliffe, um, who was at Merton in the uh, second half of the 14th century and is a sort of towering theologian of the later Middle Ages, um, but largely responsible for the Lollard heresy. Um, so an extremely interesting and, for the powers that were at the time, extremely problematic figure. Anyway, Wycliffe's writings um, travelled very, very widely, were responsible for the, the outbreak of the Lollard heresy in this country, um, but we know were read by Jan Hus at the University of Prague in Bohemia, in the 15th century, in the late 14th and early 15th centuries. And um, Huss, of course, became responsible for what's known as the Hussite heresy, which in many ways looks quite like the Lollard heresy. It's not the same thing, and he wasn't directly inspired by Wycliffe, but the point is they're reading each other's work mm-hmm. and drawing on each other's ideas in this really incredible sort of cosmopolitan international network of learning. Right, yeah, so there's a sense that there is a real network where ideas mm-hmm. can transmit between the two. Yeah. And, 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 I mean, I guess... Was that did that exist before, or it would have just been much more informal? I think more informal. I think in the Middle Ages, right from the start, actually, there's a sense that learning and scholarship is about travelling and it's about exchanging ideas. It's not about sitting in an ivory tower and just getting on with it on one's own. It's about engaging in conversation and debate and sharing ideas. And you know, the the image of the wandering scholar is is a sort of frequent trope in um, medieval poetry from a very early stage, actually. So, you know, one would always want to move around. That was Professor Hannah Skoda and Dan Cosins at Merton College, Oxford. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read their article about the visit in our May issue. Now, regular listeners or readers will know that we're running an ongoing series called Our First World War that charts the history of the conflict through the voices of those who were there. We've now come to April 1915, and here, in an interview with the Imperial War Museum, is Private Jack Dorgan describing your traumatic experience he underwent that month on the Western Front. And a shell dropped, right in among us, half a dozen or so. And when we, when me, when I <coughs> pulled myself together, I was lying in a shell hole, I was lying in the shell hole and another soldier was there with me, unwounded, same as I was. I hadn't a, I hadn't a, a wound on me, but the two men were in the shell hole along with us and they were wounded, heavily wounded. So we shouted for stretcher bearers to come and then the, the other chap says to me, we're not all here, Jack. I says, no, we are not. So I climbed out of the shell hole and there was two of our comrades lying just a few yards from the shell hole. They had been blown out by the same shell that we were lying in the shell hole. They were lying, no, the legs were blown off. All I could see when I climbed up to them was the thigh bones. The white, I can always remember their white thigh.
thigh bones. The rest of the legs were gone. Private Jackie Oliver was one of them. He never recovered consciousness. He was unconscious for the few minutes after I got there until he died. I shouted back to the fellas behind me. I says, tell Reedy Oliver his brother's been wounded. Reed Oliver, it was Reed Oliver's brother, Jackie Oliver, and Reedy came along, stood looking at his brother, lying there, no legs, and he died a few minutes later. But the other, Private Bob Young, was conscious right to the last. I lay alongside of him. I said, can I do anything for you, Bob? He said, straighten my legs, Jack. And he had no legs. I touched the bones, that satisfied him. And then he said, get my wife's photograph out of my breast pocket. I took his wife's photograph out, put it in his hands, and he lay there, he couldn't move, couldn't lift a hand, couldn't lift a finger, but he held his wife's photograph on his chest. And that's how Bob Young died. That was Jack Dorkin. You can follow our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, so that's pretty much it for this week. But do join us next time when we'll be talking to one of Britain's best-known historians, Dr David Starkey, who'll be discussing Magna Carta. Meanwhile, Dan Stone will be describing his new book on the Holocaust. It's an episode you won't want to miss. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 